Mike is the author of Under the Overpass. He was with us, I think, about a year and a half ago. And Under the Overpass is a book that he wrote after spending a good part of the year uh, living on the streets with the homeless of America in several of America's uh, major cities. And his book, Under the Overpass, was a response to that. He's also a board member of World Vision, which is really cool. And his wife, Danae, is co-author with Francis Chan of Crazy Love and then a new book called The Forgotten God um, and is an amazing, uh, phenomenal writer. And we're just uh, really lucky to have them uh, this morning with us. And I also just want to mention their new book that they've kind of co-edited jointly is called Zealous Love. And Zealous Love, the subtitle is A Practical Guide to Social Justice. And far too often we end up on extremes where we kind of love, but we don't know why we're loving, or we do good, but we don't know why we're doing good, um, or we're on this extreme of um, truth and scripture and teaching and kind of heady stuff, and far too often we don't bring those things together and really understand God's heart for justice, what the scriptures say for um, our responsibility as Christians to the oppressed, to the poor, to the needy, to the orphans and the widows. And this book, Zealous Love, is an amazing synthesis of all of those things, as well as being very practical on things that you can do with your family, at home, in your own life. Um, and it kind of chronicles eight of the major challenges in the world today. So this book hits the, new, uh, the stands next week, which is kind of cool, but they've got a bunch of boxes with them this morning, and they'll be um, sitting at the table for a book signing afterwards. Um, but that's Zealous Love, but we want to just bring up Mike and Danae, and they're going to give um, the message this morning. So would you give them a warm welcome? Thanks very much, guys. Well, good morning to all of you. Thank you for coming this morning and for braving an unexpected snowstorm. It is an honor for Danae and I to be here with you this morning, and what we're going to do this morning actually is a little bit different than what some of you may be expecting in terms of a typical sermon. Essentially, what we're going to be doing is a narrative exploration of two different biblical texts, and the texts that we're going to be focusing on today, I'd like to ask you, we'd like to ask you to consider going back and reading them perhaps this afternoon on your own or with your family or with a friend, but the text that we're going to be exploring this morning is Luke 8. And John 21. And what we're going to be doing is through the telling of story from the perspective of two characters from within those texts, both the Apostle Peter as well as one of the women whom Jesus healed. And so what we're going to be doing is, in a sense, putting on their clothes, entering into them as characters, sticking very close to the actual text of Scripture, and illuminating the text from within, sort of exploring what it means or what it would have meant, what it would have felt like to be a part of that, to be them in that place at that particular point in time, having those particular experiences with Jesus. And the reason that we're doing that is to highlight who Jesus was and is. C.S. Lewis, in an essay which he titled Meditation in a Toolshed, talks about two different ways of knowing things. He talks about knowing something in a sort of distant and abstract sort of way and knowing something by entering into it in order to experience it. Lewis writes this, 
He says, I was standing today in a dark tool shed. So imagine you're in the middle of a dark room. You're out in the back 40 of some property, and there's a tool shed. You enter into that tool shed. It's completely dark. So put yourself in that place and listen to what Lewis has to say. I was standing today in a dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside, and through a crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light, with the specks of dust floating in it, was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. But then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed and, above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside. And beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. In particular cases, we shall find reason for regarding the one or the other vision as superior. One must look both at and along everything. Now, put that in the perspective of taste, for example. We're talking about sight here, but let's take taste, for example. I could tell you that taste is a biochemical reaction of the chemical compounds in food with your palate, and that it initiates an electrochemical response in your neurons that you perceive as taste. Or I could give you an apple and say, take a bite. Taste what it is. Now, those are two very different ways of knowing the same sort of thing. And so we can preach didactically, we can examine the text and go through it verse by verse by verse. There's absolutely incredible worth in doing that, but we want to suggest to you today that by entering into a narrative exploration of the text, we can look along the beam and see something perhaps that we wouldn't see otherwise. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you are with us. We ask that you would remind each of us that you are with us and that you are with us in all the particularities of our lives. Um, help us each to take that in in a new and fresh way today um, in this Christmas season. We pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. He said it was because I had faith. I didn't have faith. All I had was desperation. Unhampered, uncontainable, wild desperation. Maybe you could call it hope. Maybe. If it was hope, it was a dying hope. Nearly perished hope with just a breath or two left in it. He said it was my faith that healed me, but that cannot be because I didn't have any faith. I was healed because I was desperate enough to try anything, and believe me, I had tried everything. When the bleeding first started, I thought it was something that would pass quickly, so I tried to ignore it. But as the months and months passed, my fear grew. 
I started visiting anyone and everyone who claimed they could help me. I went to every kind of physician, sorcerer, and magician that you can imagine. I spent everything I had paying for remedies, potions, and medicines that did After a while, I ran out of money. And when this happened, I sold the only thing I had left, damaged though it was. I sold my body. Don't you go judging me for that. What else could I do? What would you have done if you were in my place? Tell me. I would like to know. I had no options. No friends since my husband divorced me. No power in this society because I am a woman. No family to fall back on. No support or acceptance at the synagogue because I was unclean. What, please tell me, was I supposed to do about these things? I cannot make my husband take me back. I cannot change the fact that I am a woman. I cannot force my family to accept me. I cannot make myself clean. In fact, making myself clean is what I have been trying to do for 12 years when I heard about this rabbi. 12 years, a long time. 12 years of being excluded like a Gentile. 12 years of being ostracized from the temple. 12 years of only being touched when I paid people to try to heal me or when they paid me to touch me. 12 years, 12 years left me exhausted, exhausted and desperate. The stories I heard about him were ridiculous. They're not much more far-fetched than some of the people I have visited in past years in my search for wholeness. Capernaum had been buzzing with rumors about this rabbi, so much so that I, even ostracized as I was, heard about him. I heard about how he had fed thousands of people from just five loaves and two fish. I heard that when he touched cripples, they began to walk. I heard that he caused a blind person to see again. I heard all of this cynically, without believing it was true, without hope, because after all, I had heard such fantastic stories before. I had heard of even more amazing miracles than these, and I had believed them. They had sounded good, and I had dared to hope that if such miracles were true, that they could perhaps help me as well. But I was wrong. Every time they poked and prodded me, demanding my money, telling me to believe more, try harder, follow their elaborate instructions more exactly. I had been wrong for 12 years, and to be honest, I was tired. Tired of trying, tired of having my hope disappointed again and again. I made up my mind to ignore this new rabbi. I made up my mind not to let myself hope he could help me. It was midweek, market day. I was walking my usual route to buy my meager supply of food for the week. 
I remember it was hot, yet despite the heat, I felt cold and drained of energy, weakened from my ongoing illness and from the effort to walk through the market. The crowds felt more overwhelming that day than usual. I kept getting shoved aside and bumped. This kind of energy and these numbers of people are fairly normal for a holy or festival day, but I couldn't think which holy day it could be. It had been years since I'd been to the temple, but that didn't mean I had forgotten the festivals. I am Jewish after all. I kept moving toward the stalls I always shopped at, run by people who were willing to sell to an unclean woman. Not that they touched me, but we had it all figured out. I pointed at what I wanted and they collected it and set it down. Only then did I pick it up and go on my way. As I made my purchases, still jostled by an inordinate number of people, I heard someone say, Yeshua is coming and another, the rabbi is here. My immediate response was that I would hurry through my shopping and get as far away from this miracle working rabbi as I could. I wanted nothing to do with such frauds. I finished my purchases and attempted to skirt away from the center of town where I thought the rabbi would be. I found myself unable to make my way where I wanted to go. I was carried along in the direction and energy of the crowd. And then I saw him. I don't know how I knew it was the rabbi. I just did. There was nothing unique or profound about him. He looked like a normal Jewish man of humble means. I stared in his direction and stopped where I was. It seemed that the crowd was moving toward me, and as the moments passed, I realized the rabbi was heading almost directly towards me. He seemed to have a small group of people gathered around him who appeared to be shielding him from the crowd pressing in. My common sense told me to stop wasting my time and to continue home, but I couldn't move. The rabbi and his group moved closer and closer to me, and I couldn't keep my eyes off the rabbi's face. It was a very average face, yet the longer I looked, the more I saw in his face something I had never seen before. It was something deeply good. At the time, I couldn't say what it was. I thought a lot about what I saw in his face that day, and I still struggle to describe it. All I know is that, is that it evoked something of hope in me. My heart began to beat more quickly as a small group moved right beside and then past where I stood. Without thinking, if I had, I'm sure I wouldn't have done it. I pushed my way through the people in front of me and reached out my hand. And then I touched him. They will crucify me tomorrow. But I have told them that they must kill me upside down. I am not worthy to die the same way that he died, you see. No, not at all worthy to die the way the Lord died. My what a journey this has been. Not exactly the life I thought I would live. 
but I wouldn't have it any other way. I grew up expecting to live and to die as a fisherman, but that all changed the day he told me I would be a fisher of men. You should have been there that day. There were so many people around him, they kicked up a cloud of dust as they moved. We could hear them long before they reached the shore of the sea. They were practically suffocating him, pushing in around him, expectant, hopeful, greedy. I had heard about him. We all had. But I just sat in my boat, watching, mending my nets. He walked right up to me and climbed into my boat and asked if I would put out a little so that he could teach without being smothered. I left everything that afternoon. My boat, my nets, my family, my friends, I left it all to follow him. One night, about a month later, he wanted to go across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It had been a long day, and truth be told, I think more than anything, Jesus wanted a little rest. He had been teaching all day there on that shore and healing hundreds maybe thousands, from all the surrounding villages. Rumors about him had spread far and wide, and the more the rumors spread, the larger the crowds became. We were all exhausted. I manned the rudder and was thankful for the time to think. Even an exhausted fisherman can find respite on the sea. Some people fear the sea. It is, after all, an age-old symbol of chaos. But I was thankful to be out on her again after spending so much time on land. But that night, the sea was in a foul mood, and just about the time we were midway through our voyage, the fiercest storm I've ever seen came right up and blindsided us. Even I and James and John were shocked by its strength. Can you imagine? We who had been on that sea since we were tall enough to climb into the boat beside our fathers, even we started to panic. The swells towered above us, higher than the mast, moving ominously around us like monsters beneath a black sheet, or, if not past us, then under us, flinging us upward until, once we'd crested, they let us go and sent us plummeting down again into the valley. The sails were in tatters, and the walls were failing beneath the waves. And Jesus, he was asleep. There, in the front of the boat, on a cushion. At last, John went and woke him, and all our questions on his lips asked, Do you not care that we are perishing? And then he stood, the sleep still in his eyes, and commanded the storm, Peace, be still. And do you know what? It listened. The wind and the waves and the chaos of it all ceased instantly. All was calm. It was then that I first thought he might be God. He was more than just a prophet. I knew that much. For no prophet had ever calmed the sea. No, no, no. I know my history. I've read my scriptures. There has only been one who has ever calmed the sea. Yahweh himself. 
And it's right there in Genesis if you want to read it. The spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters, over implying authority, over implying superiority. Yahweh ordered the chaos, commanded the darkness, and Jesus calmed the sea. And there he was, standing in my boat, Emmanuel, God with us? How can that be? The next day was rather interesting. Jarius, the ruler of that town's synagogue, had come to Jesus and asked him to heal his daughter. This was a high-profile miracle, if you know what I mean. I may be a fisherman, but I know how power works. The more people who saw him perform miracles, the greater our numbers would be. And the more people who were with us, the greater chance we had of establishing him as king. That is, of course, what we were all waiting for. That is what we thought the prophecies of old actually meant. But I, I had it wrong, you see. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world. Jesus had a very different idea of how he was going to bring about his kingdom. For right there, in the middle of the dusty, expectant throng, a woman reached out through the crowd and touched him. When I touched him, he stopped. And as soon as I touched him, I yanked my offending hand back into my cloak so that no one would know what I did. But he looked around and said, who touched me? I remember panicking and wondering, why, oh why, was I so foolish? Why did I take such a risk? Why did I, an unclean woman, intentionally touch another person, and a rabbi, no less. I shrunk back, trying to get away, to melt into the crowd, but the people were packed too tightly, and there was nowhere to go. I lowered my gaze and tried to disappear inside my cloak. Around me, several people shook their heads, denying that they had touched the rabbi. One big man, who looked like he had worked hard his whole life, addressed the rabbi, telling him that everyone was crowding and pressing into him, that of course people were touching him. But the rabbi would not let it go. He said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. As soon as he said these words, I knew that I would have to come forward. I couldn't run away. I couldn't move. There wasn't anything to do but confess. Even as I slowly moved forward toward the rabbi in the eerily silent crowd, I realized that my pain was gone. I hadn't noticed it at first in the fear and the tension of the moment, but the dull pain that had been my constant companion for 12 years was gone. I had forgotten what it felt like to not be in pain. Could it really be true? Was I healed? I barely allowed myself to think the thought. 
My hope had been broken so many times. But there was no denying it. My pain was gone. And I could tell that the bleeding had stopped. Incredulously, yet still terrified, I fell on my face at the rabbi's feet. The food that I had bought at the market scattered and forgotten. I lay in the dust, tasting the grittiness of it in my teeth, trembling, not knowing what to say. What happened next, I cannot explain or fully understand even now. This rabbi knelt down and put his hand on my shoulder. Don't touch me, I whispered. I am unclean. Instead of removing his hand like every other person had done when they found out I was unclean, he kept his hand there. And then he whispered my name. Sarah, he said, I love you. When he said those words, it was though he had said everything, everything that is true and good and necessary. It felt like he had given me all that I needed in that one moment. By his words and by his touch, by not shrinking back in revulsion and fear. All of a sudden, I wanted to tell what he had done for me. This rabbi, he helped me to my feet and made space for me to speak. The words came pouring out, and all those surrounding and watching heard the words I said. I touched you, I said, because I have been bleeding for 12 years. I have been unclean and alone for 12 years. And I have spent all my money seeking healing. I heard you heal people, and I was desperate. I have lived without hope and without love for many years, so I had nothing to lose. I no longer have pain. I have stopped bleeding. I don't understand how or why, but it is the truth. And then the rabbi said to me, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. He called me daughter. He accepted me, even though I was unclean. He healed me. Then he sent me on my way in peace, true peace. Peace that I could only know because of his words and his touch. The next three years went by in a flash, and then one night we were in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. They came for him, but I was ready. I was ready. We all were. I knew how power worked. Rome was all around us, the soldiers and the swords. I had my sword, and I used my sword. This was our chance. Finally, we were finally strong enough. All Jerusalem was behind us. They had welcomed him with cries of Hosanna the day before. By noon, the city could be ours. At last, at last, we were strong enough to resist Rome. We could make him king, the king of the Jews. 
But that, that was my idea, not his. You see, his kingdom is not like our kingdoms. I know that now. And I felt my strength crumble as I watched him that night before the guards, bloodied, being beaten, and beaten. And I cursed him that night. And I denied him three times. And do you know what? Each time was easier than the last. And when that damn cock crowed three times, I wept. I wept bitterly. I wept and I departed. Not because I had denied him, but because he had failed me. The next few hours were a nightmare blur. I wasn't sure if I was awake or asleep, but then I felt someone pulling me. I couldn't see who it was. There was a mocking, bellowing, bloodthirsty crowd, and they were angry. I was angry. We were chanting something. Maybe I chanted too. I don't know. I can't remember. But it got louder as we walked. Crucify. 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 And there he was. I saw him when we reached Golgotha and they raised him up on that cross. Make no mistake. This was defeat. Emmanuel, God with us, what good is a crucified God? But that is not the end of the story. And so, here I am. I shall be crucified tomorrow, like he was, before yet another mocking, bellowing, bloodthirsty crowd. Am I worried? No. Afraid? Maybe a little, yes, but only that I will not be strong enough to die in a manner worthy of the Lord of life. If you are asking if I am afraid of death, then the answer is no. Why should I fear death? I know the author of life, the one who is crucified and dead and yet who got up from the grave. This is you know, the central question of all human existence. Did Jesus actually get up from the grave? For as my friend Paul once said, if Christ did not get up from the grave, then we who proclaim that he is alive are to be pitied above all others. Why? Well, if Christ did not get up from the dead, then neither shall I. And my insistence that he did is the reason I shall be killed tomorrow. If Christ did not get up from the dead, then all I am, as the Epicurean philosophers like to say, is a fortuitous conglomeration of atoms, a walking coincidence, a chance occurrence of no real significance or import. If Christ did not get up from the dead, then what I should have done is eat, drink, and be merry. <laughs> For tomorrow, I die. 
But don't just pity me. Pity yourself too. For it won't be long until you, a mere conglomeration yourself, go the same way. But, but, if he did get up from the grave, then that changes everything. Everything. I didn't believe it at first. It was too fantastic, too impossible to be true. But something happened that has convinced me otherwise. And I have spent my life proclaiming that he did get up from the grave. After he had been crucified, I left Jerusalem and returned home. I felt I had been a fool, swayed by a tale that I knew better than to believe. I started fishing again for fish. Some of the other apostles joined me. I think they were as confused and angry as I was. We fished all night and threw our fury into the sea, casting the nets again and again into the dark waters, pulling them up empty every time. At last, we ceased and sat, in the, and sat silent in the darkness, each of us lost in thought, a hollow feeling enveloped my heart. He was no Lord, no Messiah. Turn the other cheek? No. What we had needed were more swords. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you? Rubbish. Do unto others before they do unto you. Lose your life and find it? No. Keep your life and you'll have it. But then, dawn arrived. And there we were in the center of a glowing sea, the shimmering water lapping against our hull. The light startled me out of my dark thoughts, and I blinked like a man waking from a dream. All seemed fresh and new. The briny sea air, the slippery nets in my hand, the hard wooden seats. And suddenly, John cried out, Who's that? He was pointing at the shore. I shielded my eyes against the sunlight, but I couldn't make out who it was. Have you any fish? The figure called out, cupping his mouth so we could hear. I looked down at our empty nets. No, of course not. Throw the nets off to the right side. The voice from the shore came again. And my back went all to chills. Only one had told me how to fish. We obeyed. And we could hardly pull in the nets. But of course, I wasn't any help. As soon as I felt the weight on the lines, I knew who it was on the shore. It had all happened before, you see, exactly the same way. That day Jesus told me I would be a fisher of men had been a fruitless night of toil and an, followed by an impossible catch. I knew who was on shore. Despite the improbability, despite the impossibility, it was him. 
I threw myself into the sea and began to swim. Forget the nets, forget the catch, forget the boats. I don't need them anymore. And when I got to shore, there he was, kneeling over the fire, the light flickering through the holes in his wrists. And he was cooking breakfast. Like that was a perfectly ordinary thing for him to be doing. He looked at me and grinned joyously. And then turned back to the bread and the fish he was browning over the coals. Bread and fish? Don't you see? The one who had fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish was cooking me breakfast. The one who had said, this is my body and my blood, take of it and eat and drink, was cooking me breakfast. The one who had silenced the storm and healed the broken, he had come to me. The one who had denied him and cursed him and turned away, he was welcoming me and I dripping and gaping, fell to my knees before him. Emmanuel, God with us. Amen.